Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, the economics and trade correspondent for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This episode is a very special one with Anna Swanson from the New York Times. Anna, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. So I thought the plan for this one would be us essentially bridging the gap between the economics and the journalists and essentially talking about the stories of the real life people who have been affected by these big policy decisions. So I think the first theme that it's important to draw out is that we have a lot of headlines, a lot of broad economic narratives, ideas out there. And one is this very linear relationship between the effects of trade on people and the recent political upheaval in the US. And certainly my experience has been that it's always more complicated than that. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. So politics and policy are rarely as clear cut as you think. And I was thinking about why that is, and it seems like in the recent era, it's especially true because there's been this realignment of politics, the politics of trade with President Trump. And the president is, his approach to trade is obviously much more populist than Republicans of the past. And so you have situations where labor unions like the United Steelworkers are actually supporting the president's policies and defending him against Republican-leaning groups like the Chamber of Commerce. And so the politics of trade have just gotten really messy and interesting um, in the last uh, several months. So I often see that when I'm out reporting my stories um, that you know some people support the president, um, but his trade policies might be damaging to their livelihood and other people oppose the president, but they're actually kind of begrudgingly supportive of his trade policies. One example of that I saw was at the Port of New Orleans, where the workers really heavily depend on steel imports. About half of what goes through the port is steel. And I was talking to one young guy who works at the port, and he supported Trump because he was a wealthy businessman. Even though he felt like as an African American who was making just about twenty to thirty thousand dollars a year, um, the President Trump wouldn't actually do that much for him. And then also President Trump had had proposed these steel tariffs that we're waiting for now, um, which could really hurt his work at the port. And workers there still remember when President George W. Bush imposed steel tariffs in 2002 and how that led to fewer ships coming in and less money for their their pockets. When you're speaking with these folks that we have identified, their sectors have been targeted by trade, and you and you start to, to talk with them, how much of it does it seem to be trade that's influencing their their political de- decisions and their their choices, how they view potentially President Trump? Is it that, or are there other complicated factors as well? There are definitely other complicated factors as well, and often I think it's really hard to separate trade policy out from other bigger economic and environmental trends that show up in these stories, too. For example, both Samaya and I visited this smelter in Kentucky owned by Century Aluminum, which has been the focus of the recent 232 investigation because it was the last smelter making this particular kind of high-purity military-grade aluminum in the United States. So they've, they've had to shut down part of their capacity because of low prices for aluminum, 
But also there are other economic trends that go into this. So a big force in the aluminum industry, the story that you don't hear is that a lot of smelters have moved abroad in large part because of the price of electricity. So to create aluminum, you basically first have to make what is a giant battery and it uses just incredible amounts of electricity. Like I think a, the, a smelter the size of the one that we visited in Haasville uses about the same electricity as a city the size of Columbus, Ohio. Um, So smelters have relocated to parts of the world where energy is just really cheap, like the Middle East or Iceland, which has a lot of geothermal and hydroelectric power. And that's why lots of it's moved to Canada, right? Because they've got the hydroelectric power there. That's true. And then another thing is that in the United States, sometimes you have other competing in- interests for those fa- that power. So for example, in Washington State, where there used to be a lot of aluminum smelters, now you have server farms from companies like Microsoft that are demanding that energy and pushing smelters out of the country. So that's another economic factor that you might not see right away uh, that interacts with trade policy. So when I visited the smelter, one of the workers took me to his favorite spot which was this sort of watchtower next to the river and all the coal was arriving. Um, And one of the things uh, they mentioned as as one of the factors holding them back was all the kind of environmental regulation that was imposing costs on them. So it definitely was more complicated than just competition from China. So along those lines, are there other examples of where you've showed up in a particular location expecting to learn that the story was all about trade and it turned out it was something else? Last April, I had the chance to visit this town called Quinell in British Columbia that's really deep in the forest on this main logging road that travels up uh, to the Yukon Territory. So April 2017, that has to be softwood lumber. Is that where you're going to take us? (laughs) Yes, that's right. So this is part of the softwood lumber dispute. I went there to get the reaction to the U.S. deciding to, starting an investigation to impose uh, countervailing duty and anti-dumping tariffs on Canadian lumber, which has been a big issue for the industry there. And the people there obviously are really familiar with this trade dispute. They affectionately called it Lumber 5. They said it was like a bad action movie that kept coming back (laughs) to haunt them. But it wasn't all about trade policy. So a big factor there as well was environmental. The bigger issue for companies there is has been climate change and then this epidemic of mountain pine beetle, which is an invasive species that has destroyed about 80% of the lodgepole pine, which is the predominant species that they log in that area. It's been really damaging to the industry. So for a while, they were actually logging more to try to harvest that lumber before it basically just rotted in the forests and export that to the United States. But they do expect that in the next few years, there could be a collapse there. And as a result, a lot of Canadian companies are actually investing in the United States and buying lumber companies here just in an effort to diversify. So they definitely care about the tariffs, but there are also huge other issues as well. And and so from the the geeky economist perspective, if I'm thinking about that, the reason why the Canadian lumber supply curve is shifting out, it might not be because of alleged subsidies, it's because they just started cutting down more trees because they were worried about these things dying because of these these infestations of the beetles. Definitely. It led to a glut in lumber for a while. And I think that's starting to kind of tailor off. Um, but it was a big factor in the industry. Interesting. 
And it was, it's been really, it was really amazing to speak to local people there as well, um, because I met the most polite group of lumberjacks and truckers that I've, <laughs> you know, ever been able to meet. And um, everyone there was very tuned into trade and also climate change. I mean, they're really aware of the risk and how that's changing their profession. So clearly there are a lot of economic interests out there who have huge incentives to pin problems on trade. And that's partly a function of how US law is set up. There are remedies to cope with trade in the way that there aren't to deal with technology causing employment losses. And that seems to be a really big deal. So just recently we've had Um, the Trump administration worrying about these huge employment losses in the steel sector. But I think another thing that you see when you visit these places is that often these huge, huge smelters, they just don't have very many people in them. Absolutely. So I think another issue with trade is the effect of automation and globalization, right? So a lot of the what President Trump has ascribed to trade, economists would say, is due to those two factors of autom- automation and globalization. And it's kind of can be hard to separate out the effects, but certainly in steel and aluminum, we've seen a lot more automation. I mean, it, it takes far fewer people to actually operate those factories. Um, and then even in the current 232 investigations, one theme I've noticed is that the administration often talks about China, but how China's overcapacity is spilling over into other countries. And you have this issue of what they call country hopping, you know, where companies uh, try to get around U.S. restrictions on China by moving to other countries. I think that some of that is true, but then you also have to think about the economic factors there where wages are rising in China. And so companies are just naturally moving out of China into places like Vietnam and Indonesia, too. So, you know, some of it is country hopping, but some of it could just be the practice of globalization as well. So as you showed up at these plants to do reporting, is there anything in particular that surprised you when you got there? The degree of automation definitely surprised me in several of these places. The lumber factory that I went to in Quinell, British Columbia, is this really automated, really high-tech place. Um, And there are really only about a dozen or so people working in this factory that, you know, I think was about a, a square mile or, you know, several football fields, at least very, very large. It's mostly computers analyzing logs and figuring out where exactly to cut them. And just a few workers kind of packing them and monitoring the machines at the end. And I think that's a pretty common experience. You know, steel mills, aluminum smelters I've visited are very automated as well. A couple of things struck me. One one was talking to the workers at the plant and understanding that it wasn't just, you know, robots replacing people because it was better for the company. Unambiguously, a lot of these machine investments were there so that men didn't have to pour molten metal into another pot, right? It was just very dangerous um, when you've got that many people working in very close proximity to these insanely hot metals. So some of the technology no, improvement that... is not yeah, just no, to replace no. humans but to actually make workplace conditions more safe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I definitely saw an example of that at the 
port when I visited the port of New Orleans as well. So ports have become much more automated in the last few decades. Now they use containers. Um, the men actually used to use giant hooks where they would pierce the cargo and haul it up with their hands. I mean, it's still an incredibly dangerous job, but compared to what it used to be, it's just totally transformed. And these are still, you know, really good paying jobs. Um, they've gotten safer. I mean, automation has definitely decreased employment a little bit, but you've gotten gains for their working conditions as well. And the other thing I really noticed, and this was from from the guys telling me about how they did their jobs. So you had one guy who was reading the machine like it was a living animal, right? They were they were talking about how working out, you know, when to cool or heat up the the aluminium was, you know, it was like an art, right? It wasn't a science. There was you, you just kind of got the feeling for it. And I I think the point that they were trying to communicate to me was that, you know, we're not that replaceable, right? There is there is a skill to this. And they were like chefs in a kitchen. Exactly. But and then I guess that that, you know, contributes to the point that the Trump administration is making, which is that, you know, supposing you do get large human capital losses, then that stuff isn't necessarily that easy to build up again. Right. With the aluminum smelter, especially the men got to know different kinds of pots and, you know, what temperature they were running at. And they saw, you know, certain ones as very testy and other ones as more reliable. They all had kind of their own personalities. And you do see a lot of expertise like that in any factory. People who really understand their work, really understand the machinery they're working with. And when that factory closes, that just disappears and it takes a while to build that up again. So they are making a broader point in both these workers and the Trump administration about how degrading the U.S. industrial base can be really harmful because you start to lose things one by one and it's not necessarily that easy to replace them. So both of you have said the word men repeatedly. Yeah, and this was this was a thing that I asked about. I got to the I got to the aluminium smelter and I was like, so where are the ladies? And they kind of you know, the, there there were some. They were mainly working in the um in the kind of office bit of the of the plant. I was amused to see that there was a, a hurricane shelter that was the men's bathroom because I guess the ladies' bathroom was smaller. <laughs> Yeah, I think those environments tend to be very male-dominated. I did have the opportunity to, to talk with a female steelworker in Pennsylvania, and then also in Kentucky, I spoke with a woman who worked at the aluminum smelter, and her story was kind of interesting. So her, I think one of her family members had maybe worked there before her, but the reason she had been recruited is because she she is um, about 6'4", and just, you know, a basketball star, incredibly strong kind of physical person. And back in the day, the job used to involve a lot more manual labor than it does today. I mean, now there are jobs where you could just essentially be, you know, pushing some buttons or overseeing machinery. But back in the day, you really had to haul things around. And she felt like she was equipped to do that. So she actually did take on that job early on and was able to support her children and, um, you know, work for decades there. And she was really um, frightened of losing that work as well. So it's certainly also the case that these really controversial trade actions that have been happening over the last year with the Trump administration involving steel, aluminum, um, softwood lumber, potentially. These are sectors that are probably primarily 
employing men. Um, so at some level, it's not surprising that that would be the, the folks that you would run into and have conversations with. So the people that you've been talking about so far seem to be the people that are most directly affected by trade. So have you met people along the way that have been indirectly impacted? And can you kind of tell us a little bit how you came across them along the way? Yeah. So sometimes to tell the story of how trade might affect American industries, I feel like you have to go abroad and tell the story of their competitors. So I found an example like that when I was doing some reporting. Actually, for a different story in Nova Scotia, I was reporting about the issue that we all know and love as investor state dispute settlement, which is incredibly wonky. But along the way, I stumbled on this lobster factory in Nova Scotia. And I was really intrigued because I'd never been to a lobster factory. Delighted when I went in to discover that it was kind of this Willy Wonka-esque place where the workers were all wearing uh, shiny blue aprons and had puffy hairnets and beard nets and were disassembling lobster. I guess it was a little messier than Willy Wonka. But, but in the process, so this factory had really gained from the free trade agreement that Canada recently signed with the EU. As a result of that agreement, the European Union cut its tariffs on live lobster from uh, 8% previously to zero. So now American lobster producers, um, all of the main lobster fishermen, when they export to Europe, they still have to pay that 8% tariff. So there's definitely a clear competitive advantage that these lobster fisheries just a little bit north of the border in Canada have when exporting to Europe. And they were really excited about that possibility, um, about their country signing other new trade agreements. And then when I went um, and asked the main lobstermen about this issue as well, they were really worried and angry about it and said this was something they were really focused on because the United States has been a main supplier to Europe for a long time and they're worried about losing that advantage. So this is an example of Canada and the European Union moving on, citing their own free trade agreement with each other, leaving the United States behind in any time that two countries cut their tariffs toward each other, that actually discriminates against American producers. And so these American lobster men and women in Maine, now they still face an 8% tariff that, that the Canadians don't. That's right. And it was even leading to some Maine lobstermen investing in Canada instead of the United States and moving their operations just over the border. And one woman I talked to who represented the Maine lobstermen said that, um, you know, the president often complains about the outsourcing of jobs due to trade. Here's an example of outsourcing jobs due to trade. So that was definitely something that disadvantaged them. Interesting. But they're outsourcing it to try to service the European market with those lobster. That's right. So, you know, lobster don't discriminate of whether they're just over the border in Canada or in the United States, but trade policy definitely does. I think this brings us on to the final thing I want to talk about, which is why economists are so skeptical of, of anecdotes, these personal stories. And, and so one of the reasons, I think, is because often in the real world, the people who it's easiest to tell the anecdote about, the people who are directly affected by trade policy, they're the ones with the loudest voices, right? It's easiest to tell the anecdote from the steel worker or the aluminium worker or even the lobster grower who's competing with someone else. But the problem is you, you can't tell the anecdote about the single mum who now has to spend a little bit more of her paycheck buying something that's a bit more expensive because of 
trade protection, you know, because maybe she just doesn't notice. And so it's a very difficult story to tell. But that's no less kind of valid um, a problem if people, are, you know, finding their wallets pinched. And so, you know, there's the kind of unidentified victim of policy uh, who might be harder to talk to. And, and inevitably, one should be sceptical about telling these tear-jerking stories about, you know, individuals who are very affected. Yeah, in our economic models, I can see that consumer. So I can see that she loses out. But I noticed that in the real world, nobody goes out and ever finds her to talk to her. So Anna, is that a problem? Absolutely. I think telling the story of the consumer and how a consumer incrementally might miss out due to higher barriers on trade, that's a really difficult story to tell. And one of the best ways to tell it is actually through data, I think, which is, you know, why journalists shouldn't just rely on anecdotes, they should also rely on data. And some of the most effective stories are actually using both identifying trends in the data and then finding anecdotes to support that. It's not just something that shows up in trade reporting. I think it also shows up in trade policy. So you don't have as many groups that are fighting as vociferously for consumers to save $20 on washing machines, right? Uh, you have people who are fighting for jobs because it's much more dramatic to see that job loss in their community than see you know, the millions and millions of people who will pay 10 to $20 more for an appliance. I have tried to tell that story in the past by looking not just at people, but looking at products as well. So one example I found, so in the port of New Orleans, I got to see this massive ship that had come in, um, and on it were some steel coils. And so I tried to track down where exactly the steel was headed, and it turned out that it was going to be put on a barge and sent up the Mississippi River and ultimately sent to this container factory, which makes aerosol cans that are used in Barbasol shaving cream or Ready Whip or Pam cooking spray. And the factory owner said that this type of steel that he's using actually isn't available in the United States. So he was really worried about the potential effect of the 232 and how that might raise prices for his business, which employs um, a lot of people in the Midwest. Yeah, I feel like that's that's often how people get around it or how you know I can sometimes get around it, which is that you, instead of thinking about the consumers, you think about the importers, because ultimately before the consumer pays, the importer pays. And, you know, then do they pass that on to the consumer? But you can you can see the, the, the price increase through their stories, at least. The thing about anecdotal evidence and, you know, hopping from the life of an economist to a journalist, there are some things that you just can't capture in the data. There are qualitative things that is just really difficult that you might not even know to look for unless you went and you met the people. Um, and, and I think that's one of the benefits of, of telling these stories. So I think if I hadn't gone and spoken to the people who were getting trade adjustment assistance, I would have been much more blasé about saying, don't worry, we can fix all the problems by just having better retraining programs. And so only actually by meeting them and kind of thinking about the programs and talking to them and kind of realizing just how hard it is, you know, how there might just be other stuff going on in their lives that isn't that supportive. But also just how, in the case that I saw, how much the people relied upon the people helping them out at the at the employment center. Those relationships were so important. And it seemed like the people I spoke to had just formed these incredible relationships. And that was really helping them to succeed. 
you know, and that warmth, the warmth with which they spoke about their kind of advisor and how much that mattered to them and how important it was to them that, you know, they felt like someone believed in them, that would have been very difficult to pick up in numbers. I think there is a danger in relying too much on anecdotes, but I also wanted to say I think there's a danger in ignoring them altogether, which is that people won't care about trade. I mean, people remember stories. That's how they absorb information. And so our job is to listen to the data, figure out what's really going on in the economy, and then find those representative stories that really make people care about these issues. A great note to end on. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that is all from Trade Talks. Anna, if people want to give you amazing scoops for the New York Times, how would they contact you? I would love that. And I'm on Twitter at, at Anna Swanson. And I'm at Chad Bowne. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because just one awesome economics journalist in the booth just really wasn't enough. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry, I should have asked. <laughs>